Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The way this uh, the evening will work is I'll introduce the editors for the evening, and then they will introduce the readers. It is uh, filled with um, some of the best writers here in Los Angeles. I was actually quite impressed that you were able to wrangle all of these writers together in one room um, to, uh, uh, to be here tonight, but it must be worth it uh, to be talking about the big sleep. So please welcome Owen Hill. Owen. Owen is the author of two mystery novels, a book of short fiction, and several books of poetry. He has reviewed crime novels for the LA Times and East Bay Express. He was awarded the Howard Moss Residency at Yaddo in 2005. Welcome, Owen. Uh, Pamela Jackson. <laughs> okay. Yes, these, these are yours. These are yours. Okay. Pamela Jackson is an editor, scholar, and librarian specializing in California literacy and oh, I felt like California literacy um, and cultural history. She holds a PhD from UC Berkeley and a master's in library sci- uh, science from UCLA and was co-editor with Jonathan Latham of the exegesis of Philip K. Dick. Uh, and finally, Anthony Dean Rizzuto is a bookseller, professor of literature, and researcher. He currently teaches British and American literature and history at Sonoma State University. Please welcome Anthony. Welcome. Hi, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you, Skylight Books. Uh, we kind of had to do it in L.A., it is this bookstore. It's really an honor because uh, I think of it as one of the as an all-star bookstore. And by the way, thank you for missing the all-star. It, it, it may seem strange, but it really did take three people to do this uh, with uh, three different types of expertise and uh, expertise that, and, uh, that, that spilled over and uh, ended up being a, a really uh, wonderful stew. Uh, it's a deep book. It, it takes more than one person to, to understand it. Uh, none of us understand the plot, um, but it but it doesn't matter um, because it's a great story. And uh, because uh, Chandler talks so much about style, and because this is so beautifully read when read aloud, we we invited some of our favorite writers to, to read short pieces. Um, First up, batting first, uh, is uh, Gary Phillips, um, editor of the Obama Inheritance, among other things, um, 15 Stories of Conspiracy and War, and author of, of, I don't know if you know, the Ivan Monk series, which is a, a great novel, uh, a, a great series of novels, I think it kind of in, in the, at least in the L.A. noir tradition, but probably in the Chandler tradition, too, um, uh, a favorite of mine. And then uh, Judith 
Freeman will read uh, the author of The Long Embrace, Raymond Chandler and the Women He Loved. Uh, I, I read this constantly while I was doing the book, and I think we all dipped into it. Uh, it's just a beautiful account of Chandler and his life with the sissy, and uh, also kind of geographically dizzying as you try to follow where this guy lived. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, uh, next, uh, Steph Cha will be reading, uh, author of the Juniper Song Mystery Series, which, which plays off uh, Chandler and Chandlerisms in, in, in ways that are fun and, and deep and uh, just fun to read. Um, then then uh, Kim Cooper will be reading. Uh, from Esoteric Secret, Secret Los Angeles Tours, and also the author of a novel called The Kept Girl. And uh, if you haven't taken the Chandler tour, uh, there's one due up uh, July 28th, so you can see some of the places that are talked about here. Um, and uh, batting, uh, last but not least, and reading uh, one of those beautiful passages in The Big Sleep is uh, David Eulin. Whose, uh, whose book, Sidewalking, Coming to Terms in La with Los Angeles, was also one that was by my side when I was working on this book. Um, there's a lot more I could say about all these authors. Uh, they all have all had wonderful careers, but uh, that would take up the entire night. So we're just going to uh, let them read from this wonderful novel. Uh, leading off is Gary Phillips, and, and readers, if you could just read out the name of the next person when you're done. Gary. Oh, you oh, it's a good turnout. Um, I'm going to be reading from the, a uh, little bit into the second chapter. This is where uh, we first meet Marlowe, or, well, we meet Marlowe, of course, in the first chapter, we really get to know a little bit about Marlowe and a little bit about what the case is going to be. We went out at the French doors and along a smooth red flag path that skirted the far side of the lawn from the garage. The boyish-looking chauffeur had a big black and chromium sedan out now and was dusting that. The path took us along to the side of the greenhouse, and the butler opened the door for me and stood aside. It opened into a sort of vestibule that was about as warm as a slow oven. He came in after me, shut the outer door, opened an inner door, and we went through that. Then it was really hot. There was thick, wet, steamy, and larded with the cloying smell of tropical orchids in bloom. The glass walls and roof were heavily misted and big drops of moisture splashed down on the plants. The light had an unreal greenish color like light filtered through an aquarium. The plants filled the place, a forest of them, with nasty, meaty leaves and stalks like the newly washed fingers of dead men. They smelled as overpowering as boiling alcohol under a blanket. The butler did his best to get me through without being smacked in the face by the sodden leaves. And after a while, we came to a clearing in the middle of the jungle, under the domed roof. Here, in a space of hexagonal flags, an old red Turkish rug was laid down 
but on the rug was a wheelchair, and in the wheelchair, an old and obviously dying man watched us come in with black eyes from which all fire had died long ago, but which still had the cold black directness of the eyes in the portrait that hung above the mantel in the hall. The rest of his face was a leaden mask with the bloodless lips and the sharp nose and the sunken temples and the outward turning earlobes of approaching dissolution. His long, narrow body was wrapped in that heat in a traveling rug and a faded red bathrobe. His thin, claw-like hands were folded loosely on the rug, purple nails. A few locks of dry white hair clung to his scalp like wild flowers fighting for life on a bare rock. The butler stood in front of him and said, This is Mr. Marlowe, General. The old man didn't move or speak or even nod. He just looked at me lifelessly. The butler pushed a damp wicker chair against the backs of my legs and I sat down. He took my hat with a deft scoop. Then the old man dragged his voice up from the bottom of a well and said, Brandy, Norris. How do you like your brandy, sir? Any way at all, I said. The butler went away among the abominable plants. The general spoke again slowly, using his strength as carefully as an out-of-work showgirl uses her last good pair of stockings. I used to like mine with champagne. The champagne is cold as Valley Forge, and about a third of a glass of brandy beneath it. You may take your coat off, sir. It's too hot in here for a man with blood in his veins. I stood up and peeled off my coat and got a handkerchief out and mopped my face and neck and the backs of my wrists. St. Louis in August had nothing on that place. I sat down again and I felt automatically for a cigarette and then stopped. The old man caught the gesture and smiled faintly. You may smoke, sir. I like the smell of tobacco. I lit the cigarette and blew a lungful at him and he sniffed at it like a terrier at a rat hole. The faint smile pulled at the shadowed corners of his mouth. A nice state of affairs when a man has indulged his vices by proxy, he said dryly. You are looking at a very dull survival of a rather gaudy life, a cripple paralyzed in both legs and with only half of a lower belly. There's very little that I can eat. My sleep is so close to waking that it is hardly worth the name. I seem to exist largely on heat, like a newborn spider. And the orchids are an excuse for the heat. Do you like orchids? Not particularly, I said. The general half closed his eyes. They are nasty things. Their flesh is too much like the flesh of men. And their perfume has the rotten sweetness of a prostitute. I stared at him with my mouth open. The soft, wet heat was like a pall around us. The old man nodded, as if his neck was afraid of the weight of his head. Then the butler came pushing back through the jungle with a tea wagon, mixed me a brandy and soda, swathed a copper ice bucket with a damp napkin, and went away softly among the orchids. A door opened and shut behind the jungle. I sipped the drink. The old man licked his lips, watching me over and over again, drawing one lip slowly across the other with a funeral absorption, like an undertaker dry washing his hands. Tell me about yourself, Mr. Marlowe. I suppose I have a right to ask. Sure, but there's very little to tell. I'm 33 years old, went to college once and can still speak English if there's any demand for it. 
There isn't much in my trade. I worked for Mr. Wilde, the district attorney, as an investigator once. His chief investigator, a man named Bernie Olds, called me and told me you wanted to see me. I'm unmarried because I don't like policemen's wives. And a little bit of a cynic, the old man smiled. You didn't like working for Wilde? I was fired for insubordination. I test very high on insubordination, General. I always did myself, sir. I'm glad to hear it. What do you know about my family? I'm told you are a widower and have two young daughters, both pretty and both wild. One of them has been married three times, the last time to an ex-bootlegger who went in the trade by the name of Rusty Regan. That's all I heard, General. Did any of it strike you as peculiar? The Rusty Regan part, maybe, but I always got along with bootleggers myself. He smiled his faint, economical smile. It seems I do, too. I'm very fond of Rusty, a big, curly-headed Irishman from Clonmel, with sad eyes and a smile as wide as Wilshire Boulevard. The first time I saw him, I thought he might be what you are probably thinking he was, an adventurer who happened to get himself wrapped up in some velvet. You must have liked him, I said. You've learned to talk the language. He put his thin, bloodless hands under the edge of the rug. I put my cigarette stub out and finished my drink. He was a breath of life to me while he lasted. He spent hours with me, sweating like a pig, drinking brandy by the court and telling me stories of the Irish Revolution. He had been an officer in the IRA. He wasn't even legally in the United States. It was a ridiculous marriage, of course, and it probably didn't last a month as a marriage. I'm telling you the family secrets, Mr. Marlowe. They're all secrets, I said. What happened to him? The old man looked at me woodenly. He went away a month ago, abruptly, without a word to anyone, without saying goodbye to me. That hurt a little, but he had been raised in a rough school. I'll hear from him one of these days. Meantime, I'm being blackmailed again. I said, again? Judith, Judith Freeman is coming up next. I just wanted to say that when I first um, started reading the annotated Big Sleep, I thought of a line, a few lines from the little sister. It's Marlowe talking to Dolores Gonzalez, and he says, real cities have something else, some individual bony structure under the muck. Los Angeles has Hollywood and hates it. They ought to consider themselves lucky. Without it, it would be just another mail-order town. Everything in the catalog, you could get better somewhere else. <laughs> it seems to me that what, what Owen and, um, and Pamela and Anthony have done is to show us the real bony structure under this novel. And it's really extraordinary what they've, what they've uncovered. Um, so I'm happy to be here today and to read from um, chapter 11. And in this scene, Vivian Sternwood comes to visit Marlowe in his office for the first time. And uh, uh, they've only met once before, just after the scene that uh, Gary just read. She wore brownish speckled tweeds, a mannish shirt and tie, hand-carved walking shoes. Her stockings were just as sheer as the day before, but she wasn't showing as much of her legs. Her black, glossy hair was under a brown Robin Hood hat that might have cost $50 and looked as if you could have made it with one hand out of a desk blotter. Well, you do get up, she said, wrinkling her nose at the faded red settee, the two odd semi-easy chairs, 
the net curtains that needed laundering and the boys' size library table with the venerable magazines on it to give the place a professional touch. I was beginning to think perhaps you worked in bed, like Marcel Proust. Who's he? I put a cigarette in my mouth and stared at her. She looked a little pale and strained, but she looked like a girl who could function under a strain. A French writer, a connoisseur in degenerates. You wouldn't know him. Tut, tut, I said. Come into my boudoir. She stood up and said, we didn't get along very well yesterday. Perhaps I was rude. We were both rude, I said. I unlocked the communicating door and held it for her. We went into the rest of my suite, which contained a rust-red carpet, not very young. Five green filing cases, three of them full of California climate. An advertising calendar showing the quints rolling around on a sky-blue floor in pink dresses with seal-brown hair and sharp black eyes, as large as mammoth prunes. There were three near walnut chairs, the usual desk with the usual blotter, pen set, ashtray, and telephone, and the usual squeaky swivel chair behind it. You don't put up much of a front, she said, sitting down at the customer's side of the desk. I went over to the mail slot and picked up six envelopes, two letters, and four pieces of advertising matter. I hung my hat on the telephone and sat down. Neither do the Pinkertons, I said. You can't make much money at this trade if you're honest. If you have a front, you're making money, or expect to. Oh, are you honest, she asked, and opened her bag. She picked out a cigarette of a French enamel case, lit it with a pocket lighter, dropped the case and lighter back into the bag, and left the bag open. Painfully, I said. How did you get into this slimy kind of business then? How did you come to marry a bootlegger? My God, let's not start quarreling again. I've been trying to get you on the phone all morning, hearing at your apartment. About Owen? Her face tightened sharply. Her voice was soft. Poor Owen, she said. So you know about that. A DA's man took me down to the Lido. He thought I might know something about it, but he knew much more than I did. He knew Owen wanted to marry your sister, once. She puffed silently at her cigarette and considered me with her steady black eyes. Perhaps it wouldn't have been a bad idea, she said quietly. He was in love with her. We don't find much of that in our circle. He had a police record. She shrugged. She said negligently, he didn't know the right people. That's all a police record means in this rotten, crime-ridden country. I wouldn't go that far. She peeled her right glove off and bit her index finger at the first joint, looking at me with steady eyes. I, I didn't come to see you about Owen. Do you feel yet that you can tell me what my father wanted to see you about? Not without his permission. Was it... Was it about Carmen? I can't even say that. I finished filling a pipe and put a match to it. She watched the smoke for a moment. Then her hand went into her open bag and came out with a thick white envelope. She tossed it across the desk. You better look at it anyway, she said. 
I picked it up. The address was typewritten to Mrs. Vivian Reagan, 3765 Altebrea Crescent, West Hollywood. Delivery had been by messenger service, and the office stamp showed 8.35 a.m. as the timeout. I opened the envelope and drew out the shiny four and a quarter by three and a quarter photo that was all there was inside. It was Carmen, sitting in Geiger's high back teakwood chair on the dais, in her earrings and her birthday suit. Her eyes looked even a little crazier than I remembered them. The back of the photo was blank. I put it back in the envelope. How much do they want? I asked. 5,000 for the negative and the rest of the prints. The deal has to be closed tonight, but they give the stuff to some scandal sheet. The demand came, how? A woman telephoned me about half an hour after this thing was delivered. There's nothing in the scandal sheet angle. Juries convict without leaving the box on that stuff nowadays. What else is there? Does there have to be something else? Yes. She stared at me a little puzzled. There is. The woman said there was a police jam connected with it, and I'd better lay it on the line faster. I'd be talking to my little sister through a wire screen. Better, I said. What kind of jam? I don't know. Where is Carmen now? She's at home. She was sick last night. She's still in bed, I think. Did she go out last night? No, I was out. But the servants say she wasn't. I was down at Las Olindas playing roulette at Eddie Mars Cypress Club. I lost my shirt. So you like roulette? You would. She crossed her legs and lit another cigarette. Yes, I like roulette. All the Sternwoods like losing games, like roulette and marrying men that walk out on them and riding steeplechases at 58 years old and being rolled on by a jumper and crippled for life. The Sternwoods have money. All it has bought them is a rain check. What was Owen doing last night with your car? Nobody knows. He took it without permission. We always let him take a car out on his night off, but last night wasn't his night off. She made a wry mouth. Do you think he knew about this nude photo? How would I be able to say? I don't rule him out. Can you get 5000 in cash right away? Not unless I tell Dad or borrow it. I could probably borrow it from Eddie Mars. He ought to be generous with me, heavens knows. Better try that. You may need it in a hurry. She leaned back and hung an arm over the back of the chair. How about telling the police? It's a good idea, but you won't do it. Won't I? No, you have to protect your father and your sister. You don't know what the police might turn up. It might be something they could sit on. They couldn't sit on, though they usually try in blackmail cases. Can you do anything? I think I can, but I can't tell you why or how. I like you, she said suddenly. You believe in miracles. Would you have a drink in the office? I unlocked my deep drawer and got out my office bottle and two pony glasses. I filled them and we drank. She snapped her bag shut and pushed her chair back. I'll get the five grand, she said. I've been a good customer of Eddie Mars. There's another reason why you should be nice to me, which you may not know. 
She gave me one of those smiles the lips have forgotten before they reach the eyes. Eddie's blonde wife is the lady Rusty ran away with. I didn't say anything. She stared tightly at me and added, That doesn't interest you? It ought to make it easier to find him if I was looking for him. You don't think he's in this mess, do you? She pushed her empty glass at me. Give me another drink. You're the hardest guy to get anything out of. You don't even move your ears. I filled a little glass. You got all you wanted out of me. Pretty good idea. I'm not looking for your husband. She put the drink down very quickly. It made her gasp or gave her an opportunity to gasp. She let out a breath slowly. Rusty was no crook. If he had been, it would have been for nickels. He carried $15,000 in bills. He called it his mad money. He had it when I married him, and he had it when he left me. No, Rusty's not in on any cheap blackmail racket. She reached for the envelope and stood up. I'll keep in touch with you, I said. If you want to leave me a message, the phone girl at my apartment house will take care of it. We walked over to the door, tapping the white envelopes against her knuckles. She said, You still feel you can't tell me what Dad... I'd have to see him first. She took the photo out and stood looking at it just inside the door. She has a beautiful little body, hasn't she? Uh Uh-huh. She leaned a little towards me. You ought to see mine, she said gravely. Can it be arranged? She laughed suddenly and sharply and went halfway through the door, then turned her head to say coolly, You're as cold-blooded a beast as I ever met, Marlo. Or can I call you Phil? Sure. You can call me Vivian. Thanks, Mrs. Reagan. Oh, go to hell, Marlo. She went out and didn't look back. Jeff Cha will read next. So um, before I read from this, um, I thought this, there's a piece that Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote in the Atlantic about five years ago, six years ago, and it was all about Philip Marlowe's boners, or lack thereof, and he wrote, he writes about, um, he writes about specifically that scene and the scene I'm about to read, um, the way he throws the Sternwood girls out without any resisting all temptation. So um, this is Coates. I think to understand misogyny, one has to grapple with the conflict between male mythology and male biology. There's something deeply scary about the first time a young male experiences an erection. All the excitement and hunger and throbbing that people is there. Uh, But with that comes a deep physical longing. Whether or not that longing shall be satiated is not totally up to the male. Masculinity's central tenet is control, and perhaps most importantly, control of the body. Nothing contradicts that edict like erections. It unmans you, it compels you through sensations you scarcely understand, and it threatens to expose you to humiliate you in front of everyone. Laugh now at the boy at the middle school dance who gets an erection on a slow number. But he does not forget that laughter, nor does he forget what prompted it. That boy is going to be a rapper, or a painter, or an author of fictions where men are men and somehow are invulnerable to the humiliating effects of the female form. I think Marlowe doth protest too much. So um, I'm, I'm reading, it's a short 
It's a short chapter where um, he throws Carmen Sternwood out. The apartment house lobby was empty this time. No gunman waiting under the potted palm to give me orders. I took the automatic elevator up to my floor and walked along the hallway to the tune of a muted radio behind a door. I needed a drink and was in a hurry to get one. I didn't switch the light on inside the door. I made straight for the kitchenette and brought up short in three or four feet. Something was wrong. Something on the air. A scent. The shades were down at the windows and the street light leaking in at the sides made a dim light in the room. I stood still and listened. The scent on the air was a perfume, a heavy cloying perfume. There was no sound, no sound at all. Then my eyes adjusted themselves more to the darkness and I saw there was something across the floor in front of me that shouldn't have been there. I backed, reached the wall switch with my thumb and flicked the light on. The bed was down. Something in it giggled. A blonde head was pressed into my pillow. Two bare arms curved up and the hands belonging to them were clasped on top of the blonde head. Carmen Sternwood lay on her back in my bed, giggling at me. The tawny wave of her hair was spread out on the pillow as if by a careful and artificial hand. Her slaty eyes peered at me and had the effect, as usual, of peering from behind a barrel. She smiled. Her small, sharp teeth glinted. Cute, aren't I? She said. I said harshly, cute as a Filipino on a Saturday night. You guys have heard that line, probably. Um, I went over to the floor lamp and pulled the switch, went back to put off the ceiling light, and went across the room again to the chessboard on a card table under the lamp. There was a problem laid out on the board, a six mover. I couldn't solve it like a lot of my problems. I reached down and moved the night, then pulled my hat and coat off and threw them somewhere. All this time, the soft giggling went on from the bed, that sound that made me think of rats behind a wainscoting in an old house. I bet you can't even guess how I got in. I dug a cigarette out and looked at her with bleak eyes. I bet I can. You came through the keyhole just like Peter Pan. Who's he? Oh, a fellow I used to know around the pool room. She giggled. You're cute, aren't you? She said. I began to say, about the thumb. But she was ahead of me. I didn't have to remind her. She took her right hand from behind her head and started sucking the thumb and eyeing me with very round and naughty eyes. I'm all undressed, she said, after I'd smoked and stared at her for a minute. By God, I said. It was right at the back of my mind. I was groping for it. I almost had it when you spoke. In another minute, I'd have said, I bet you're all undressed. I always wear my rubbers in bed myself in case I wake up with a bad conscience and have to sneak away from it. You're cute. She rolled her head a little, kittenishly. Then she took her left hand from under her head and took hold of the covers, paused dramatically, and swept them aside. She was undressed, all right. She lay there on the bed in the lamplight, as naked and glistening as a pearl. The Sternwood girls were giving me both barrels that night. I pulled a shred of tobacco off the edge of my lower lip. That's nice, I said, but I've already seen it all, remember? I'm the guy that keeps finding you without any clothes on. She giggled some more and covered herself up again. Well, how did you get in, I asked her. The manager let me in. I showed him your card. I'd stolen it from Vivian. I told him you told me to come here and wait for you. I was... I was mysterious. She glowed with delight. Neat, I said. Managers are like that. Now I know how you got in... Now I know how you got in. Tell me how you're going to go, go out. She giggled. Not going. Not for a long time. I like it here. You're cute. Listen, I pointed my cigarette at her. Don't make me dress you again. I'm tired. I appreciate all you're offering me. It's just more than I could possibly take. Doghouse Riley never let a pal down that way. I'm your friend. I won't let you down in spite of yourself. You and I have to keep on being friends, and this isn't the way to do it. Now will you dress like a nice little girl? She shook her head from side to side. Listen, I plowed on. You don't really care about 
anything about me. You're just showing how naughty you can be. But you don't have to show me. I knew it already. I'm the guy that found... Put the light out, she giggled. I threw my cigarette on the floor and stamped on it. I took a handkerchief out and wiped the palms of my hands. I tried it once more. It isn't on account of the neighbors, I told her. They don't really care a lot. There's a lot of stray broads in any apartment house, and one more won't make the building rock. It's a question of professional pride, you know. Professional pride. I'm working for your father. He's a sick man, very frail, very helpless. He sort of trusts me not to pull any stunts. Won't you please get dressed, Carmen? Your name isn't Doghouse Riley, she said. It's Philip Marlowe. You can't fool me. I looked down at the chessboard. The move with the knight was wrong. I put it back where I had moved it from. Knights had no meaning in this game. It wasn't a game for knights. I looked at her again. She lay still now, her face pale against the pillow, her eyes dark and lar large and dark and empty as rain barrels in a drought. One of her small, five-fingered, thumbless hands picked up the cover restlessly. There was a vague glimmer of doubt starting to get born in her somewhere. She didn't know about it yet. It's so hard for women, even nice women, to realize that their bodies are not irresistible. I said, I'm going out in the kitchen and mix a drink. Want one? Uh-uh, uh-huh. Dark, silent, mystified eyes stared at me solemnly, the doubt growing larger in them, creeping into them noiselessly like a cat in long grass stalking a young blackbird. If you're dressed when I get back, you'll get the drink, okay? Her teeth parted and a faint hissing noise came out of her mouth. She didn't answer me. I went out to the kitchenette and got out some scotch and fizz water and mixed a couple of eyeballs. I didn't have anything really exciting to drink like nitroglycerin or distilled tiger's breath. She hadn't moved when I got back with the glasses. The hissing had stopped. Her eyes were dead again. Her lips started to smile at me. Then she sat up suddenly and threw all the covers off her body and reached. Gimme. When you're dressed. Not until you're dressed. I put the two glasses down on the card table and sat down myself and lit another cigarette. Go ahead. I won't watch you. I looked away. Then I was aware of the hissing noise, very sudden and sharp. It startled me into looking at her again. She sat there naked, propped on her hands, her mouth open a little, her face like scraped bone. The hissing noise came tearing out of her mouth as if she had nothing to do with it. There was something behind her eyes, blank as they were, that I had never seen in a woman's eyes. Then her lips moved very slowly and carefully, as if they were artificial lips and had to be manipulated with springs. She called me a filthy name. I didn't mind that. I didn't mind what she called me, what anybody called me. But this was the room I had to live in. It was all I had in the way of a home. In it was everything that was mine that had any association for me, any past, anything that took the place of a family. Not much. A few books, pictures, radio, chessmen, old letters, stuff like that. Nothing. Such as they were, they had all my memories. I couldn't stand her in that room any longer. What she called me only reminded me of that. I said carefully, I'll give you three minutes to get dressed and out of here. If you're not out by then, I'll throw you out, by force just the way you are, naked, and I'll throw your clothes after you into the hall. Now, get started. Her teeth chattered and the hissing noise was sharp and animal. She swung her feet to the floor and reached for her clothes on a chair beside the bed. She dressed. I watched her. She dressed with stiff, awkward fingers for a woman, but quickly at that. She was dressed in a little over two minutes. I timed it. She stood there beside the bed, holding a green bag tight against a fur-trimmed coat. She wore a rakish green hat crooked on her head. She stood there for a moment and hissed at me, her face still like scraped bone, her eyes still empty and yet full of some jungle emotion. Then she walked quickly to the door and opened it and went out, without speaking, without looking back. I heard the elevator lurch into motion and move in the shaft. I walked to the windows and pulled the shades up and opened the windows wide. 
the night air came drifting in with a kind of stale sweetness that still remembered automobile exhausts in the streets of the city. I reached for my drink and drank it slowly. The apartment house door closed itself down below me. Steps tinkled on the quiet sidewalk. A car started up not far away. It rushed off into the night with a rush clashing of gears. I went back to the bed and looked down at it. The imprint of her head was still in the pillow, of her small corrupt body still in the sheets. I put my empty glass down and tore the bed to pieces savagely. So I'm, I just want to say really quickly, I picked that passage because um, it so totally encapsulates the femme fatale trope and and its ridiculousness at the same time. Um, so it kind of it kind of shows how much I both love and kind of am like, what's the deal with Chandler? Um, anyway, our next reader is Kim Cooper. It's nice to be reading this part from chapter 26 because um, Marlowe is really good when he doesn't see anything, too. The lighted oblong of an uncurtained window faced me, cut by the angle of a desk. On the desk, a hooded typewriter took form. Then the metal knob of a communicating door. This was unlocked. I passed into the second of the three offices. Rain rattled suddenly against the closed window. Under its noise, I crossed the room. A tight fan of light spread from an inch opening of the door into the lighted office. Everything very convenient. I walked like a cat on a mantle and reached the hinge side of the door, put an eye to the crack and saw nothing but light against the angle of the wood. The purring voice was now saying quite pleasantly, Sure, a guy could sit on his fanny and crab what another guy done if he knows what it's all about, so you go see this peeper. Well, that was your mistake. Eddie don't like it. The peeper told Eddie some guy in a great Plymouth was tailing him. Eddie naturally wants to know who and why, see? Harry Jones laughed lightly. What makes it his business? That don't get you no place. You know why I went to the peeper. I already told you, I counted Joe Brody's girl. She has to blow and she's shatting on her uppers. She figures the peeper can get her some dough. I don't have any. The purring voice said gently, dough for what? Peepers don't give that stuff out to punks. He could raise it. He knows rich people. Harry Jones laughed, a brave little laugh. Don't fuss with me, little man. The purring voice had an edge like sand in the bearing. Okay, okay, you know the dope on Brody's bump off. That screwy kid done it all right. But the night it happened, this Marlowe was right there in the room. That's known, little man. He told it to the law. Yeah, here's what isn't. Brody was trying to peddle a nudist photo of the young Sternwood girl. Marlowe got wise to him. While they were arguing about it, the young Sternwood girl dropped around herself with a gat. She took a shot at Brody. She let one fly and breaks a window. Only the peeper didn't tell the coppers about that, and Agnes didn't either. She figures it's railroad fare for her not to. This ain't got anything to do with Eddie? Show me how. Where's this Agnes at? Nothing doing. You tell me, little man. Here, or in the back room where the boys pitch dimes against the wall. She's my girl now, Casino. I don't put my girl in the middle for anybody. The silence followed. I listened to the rain lashing the windows. The smell of cigarette smoke came through the crack of the door. I wanted to cough. I bit hard on a handkerchief. The purring voice said, still gentle, from what I hear, this blonde broad was just a shill for Geiger. I'll talk it over with Eddie. How much you tap the peeper for? Two centuries. Get it? Harry Jones laughed again. I'm seeing him tomorrow. I have hopes. Where's Agnes? Listen. Where's Agnes? Silence. Look at it, little man. I didn't move. I wasn't wearing a gun. I didn't have to see through the crack of the door to know that a gun was what the purring voice was inviting Harry Jones to look at. But I didn't think Mr. Canino would do anything with his gun beyond showing it. I waited. 
I'm looking at it, Harry Jones said, his voice squeezed tight as if it could hardly get past his teeth. And I don't see anything I didn't see before. Go ahead and blast and see what it gets you. A Chicago overcoat is what it would get you, little man. Silence. Where's Agnes? <coughs> Harry Jones sighed. Okay, he said wearily. She's in an apartment house at 28 Court Street up on Bunker Hill, apartment 301. I guess I'm yellow, all right. Why should I front for that twist? No reason. You got good sense. You and me will go out and talk to her. All I want is to find out is she dumbing it up on you, kid. If it's the way you say it is, everything is Jake the Loop. Put the bite on the peeper and be on your way. No hard feelings? No, Harry Jones said. No hard feelings, Camino. Fine, let's dip the bill. Got a glass? The purring voice was now as false as an usherette's eyelashes and as slippery as a watermelon seed. The drawer was pulled open. Something jarred on wood. The chair squeaked. The scuffling sound on the floor. This is bond stuff, the purring voice said. There was a gurgling sound. Moths in your ermine, as the ladies say. Harry Jones said softly, success. I heard a sharp cough, then a violent retching. There was a small thud on the floor as if a thick glass had fallen. My fingers curled against my raincoat. The purring voice said gently, you ain't sick from just one drink, are you, pal? Harry Jones didn't answer. There was labored breathing for a short moment, then thick silence folded down. Then a chair scraped. So long, little man, said Mr. Canino. Steps, a click. The wedge of light died at my feet. A door opened and closed quietly. The steps faded leisurely and assured. I stood round the edge of the door and pulled it wide and looked into blackness relieved by the dim shine of a window. The corner of a desk glittered faintly. A hunched shape took form in a chair behind it. In the close air, there was a heavy clogged smell, almost a perfume. I went across to the corridor door and listened. I heard the distant clang of the elevator. I found the light switch, and light glowed in a dusty glass bowl hanging from the ceiling by three brass chains. Harry Jones looked at me across the desk, his eyes wide open, his face frozen in a tight spasm, skin bluish. His small, dark head was tilted to one side. He sat upright against the back of the chair. The streetcar bell clanged at an almost infinite distance, and the sound came buffeted by innumerable walls. A brown half-pint of whiskey stood on the desk with the cap off. Harry Jones's glass glinted against a casper of the desk. The second glass was gone. I breathed shallowly from the top of my lungs and bent above the bottle. Behind the charred smell of the bourbon, another odor lurked faintly, the odor of bitter almonds. Harry Jones dying had vomited on his coat. That made it cyanide. I walked around him carefully and lifted a phone book from a hook on the wooden frame of the window. I let it fall again, reached the telephone as far as it would go from the little dead man. I dialed information. The voice answered. Can you give me the phone number of apartment 301, 28 Court Street? One moment, please. The voice came to me born on the smell of bitter almonds and silence. The number is Wentworth 2528. It is listed under Glendower Apartments. I thanked the voice and dialed the number. The bell rang three times, then the line opened. A radio blared along the wire and was muted. A burly male voice said, Hello. Is Agnes there? No, Agnes here, buddy. What number you want? Wentworth 2528. Right number, wrong gal. Ain't that a shame? The voice cackled. I hung up and reached for the phone book again and looked up the Wentworth apartment and out the manager's number. I had a blurred vision of Mr. Canino driving fast through rain to another appointment with death. Glendower Apartments, Mr. Schiff speaking. This is Wallace Police Identification Bureau. Is there a girl named Agnes Lozelle registered in your place? Did you say you were? I told him again. If you give me your number, I'll cut the comedy, I said sharply. I'm in a hurry. Is there or isn't there? No, there isn't. The voice was stiff as a breadstick. Is there a tall blonde with green eyes registered in the flop? Say, this isn't any flop. Oh, can it, 
Canada, rapped at him in a police voice. You want me to send down the vice squad over there and shake the joint down? I know all about Bunker Hill apartment houses, mister. Especially the ones that have phone numbers listed for each apartment. Hey, hey, take it easy, officer. I'll cooperate. There's a couple of blondes here, sure. Where isn't there? I hadn't noticed their eyes much. Would yours be alone? Alone or with a little chap about five feet three, a hundred and ten. Sharp black eyes, wears a double-breasted dark gray suit, an Irish tweed overcoat, gray hat. My information's apartment 301, but all I get there is the big razoo. Uh, she ain't there. There's a couple of car salesmen living in 301. Thanks. I'll drop around. Make it quiet, won't you? Come to my place, direct. Must oblige, Mr. Shift. I hung up. I wiped sweat off my face. I walked to the far corner of the office and stood with my face to the wall, patted it with a hand. I turned around and looked across at little Harry Jones grimacing in his chair. Well, you fooled him, Harry, I said out loud in a voice that sounded queer to me. You lied to him and you drank your cyanide like a little gentleman. You died like a poisoned rat, Harry. But you're no rat to me. I had to search him. It was a nasty job. His pockets yielded nothing about Agnes. Nothing that I wanted at all. I didn't think they would, but I had to be sure. Mr. Canino might be back. Mr. Canino would be the kind of self-confident gentleman who would not mind returning to the scene of his crime. I put the light out and started to open the door. The phone bell rang jarringly down on the baseboard. I listened to it, my jaw muscles drawn into a knot, aching. Then I shut the door and put the light on again and went across to it, yeah? A woman's voice. Her voice. Is Harry around? Not for a minute, Agnes. She waited a while on that, then she said slowly, Who's talking? Marla, the guy that's trouble to you. You know, it's, it's his fault they tore down Bunker Hill. I'm convinced of it, but I still love him. David Eulen is next. Um, I'm reading last, so I'm going to read short. Um, and one of the great things about reading an 80-year-old novel is there are no spoiler alerts. I'm assuming that <coughs> we all pretty much know. I, I mean, I agree. The plot is kind of incomprehensible. Um, although I think that's the point, but the structure is profound. So I'm going to read the last four pages of the book, um, which is the last part of the last chapter where Marlow returns um, to the place, uh, to the Sternwood Mansion, and um, and comes to terms with Vivian. Um, so I'll just jump in. She moved a little, and the gun slid off her knee and fell to the floor. It was one of the loudest sounds I ever heard. Her eyes were riveted on my face. Her voice was a stretched whisper of agony. Carmen, merciful God, Carmen, why? Do I really have to tell you why she shot at me? Yes. Her eyes were still terrible. I I'm afraid you do. Night before last, when I got home, she was in my apartment. She'd kidded the manager into letting her in to wait for me. She was in my bed, naked. I threw her out on her ear. I guess maybe Reagan did the same thing to her sometime, but you can't do that to Carmen. She drew her lips back and made a half-hearted attempt to lick them. It made her, for a brief instant, look like a frightened child. The lines of her cheeks sharpened and her hands went up slowly like an artificial hand worked by wires, and its fingers closed slowly and stiffly around the white fur at her collar. They drew the fur tight against her throat. After that, she just sat staring. Money, she croaked. I suppose you want money. How much money? I tried not to sneer. Fifteen thousand dollars? I nodded. That would be about right. That would be the established fee. 
That was what he had in his pockets when she shot him. That would be what Mr. Canino got for disposing of the body when you went to Eddie Mars for help. But that would be small change to what Eddie expects to collect one of these days, wouldn't it? You son of a bitch, she said. Uh-huh, I'm a very smart guy. I haven't a feeling or a scruple in the world. All I have the itch for is money. I am so money greedy that for 25 bucks a day and expenses, mostly gasoline and whiskey, I do my thinking myself what there is of it. I risk my whole future, the hatred of the cops and Eddie Mars and his pals. I dodge bullets and eat saps and say thank you very much. If you have any more trouble, I hope you'll think of me. I'll just leave one of my cards in case anything comes up. I do all this for 25 bucks a day, and maybe just a little to protect what little pride a broken and sick old man has left in his blood, in the thought that his blood is not poison, and that although his two little girls are a trifle wild, as many nice girls are these days, they are not perverts or killers, and that makes me a son of a bitch. All right, I don't care about any of that. I've been called that by people of all sizes and shapes, including your little sister. She called me worse than that for not getting into bed with her. I got $500 from your father, which I didn't ask for, but he can afford to give it to me. I can get another 1000 for finding Mr. Rusty Regan, if I could find him. Now you offer me fifteen grand. That makes me a big shot. With fifteen grand, I could own a home and a new car and four suits of clothes. I might even take a vacation without worrying about losing a case. That's fine. What are you offering it to me for? Can I go on being a son of a bitch? Or do I have to become a gentleman like that lush that passed out in his car the other night? She was as silent as a stone woman. All right, I went on heavily. Will you take her away? Somewhere far off from here where they can handle her type? Where they will keep guns and knives and fancy drinks away from her? Hell, she might even get herself cured, you know. It's been done. She got up and walked slowly to the windows. The drapes lay in heavy ivory folds beside her feet. She stood among the folds and looked out toward the quiet, darkish foothills. She stood motionless, almost blending into the drapes. Her hands hung loose at her sides, utterly motionless hands. She turned and came back along the room and walked past me blindly. When she was behind me, she caught her breath sharply and spoke. He's in the sump, she said. A horrible, decayed thing. I did it. I did just what you said. I went to Eddie Mars. She came home and told me about it, just like a child. She's not normal. I knew the police would get it all out of her. In a little while, she would even brag about it. And if Dad knew, he would call them instantly and tell them the whole story. And sometime in that night, he would die. It's not his dying. It's what he would be thinking just before he died. Rusty wasn't a bad fellow. I didn't love him. He was all right, I guess. He just didn't mean anything to me one way or the other, alive or dead, compared with keeping it from Dad. So you let her run around loose, I said, getting into other jams. I was playing for time, just for time. I played the wrong way, of course. I thought she might even forget it herself. I've heard they do forget what happens in those fits. Maybe she has forgotten it. I knew Eddie Mars would bleed me white, but I didn't care. I had to have help, and I could only get it from somebody like him. There have been times when I hardly believed it all myself, and other times when I had to get drunk quickly, whatever time of day it was, awfully damn quickly.
You'll take her away, I said, and do that awfully damn quickly. She still had her back to me. She said softly, now what about you? Nothing about me. I'm leaving. I'll give you three days. If you're gone by then, okay. If you're not, out it comes. And don't think I don't mean that. She turned suddenly. I don't know what to say to you. I don't know how to begin. Yeah, get her out of here and see that she's watched every minute. Promise? I promise. Eddie. Forget Eddie. I'll go see him after I get some rest. I'll handle Eddie. He'll try to kill you. Yeah, I said his best boy couldn't. I'll take a chance on the others. Does Norris know? He'll never tell. I thought he knew. I went quickly away from her down the room and out and down the tiled staircase to the front hall. I didn't see anybody when I left. I found my hat alone this time. Outside the bright gardens had a haunted look as though small wild eyes were watching me from behind the bushes, as though the sunshine itself had a mysterious something in its light. I got into my car and drove off down the hill. What did it matter where you lay once you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me, I was part of the nastiness now. Far more a part of it than Rusty Regan was. But the old man didn't have to be. He could lie quiet in his canopied bed with his bloodless hands folded on the sheet, waiting. His heart was a brief, uncertain murmur. His thoughts were as gray as ashes. And in a little while, he too, like Rusty Regan, would be sleeping the big sleep. On the way downtown, I stopped at a bar and had a couple of double scotches. They didn't do me any good. All they did was make me think of Silverwig, and I never saw her again. Thank you. Uh, thank you, readers. It was really beautiful. Uh, the book never gets old, and hearing it aloud is just wonderful. And we uh, we thought rather than, than lecture, we we would leave it open to you. Uh, we're all going we're going to take questions. Um, so please. I need the mic? Do I, do I need the mic? Um, we, we, uh, we all worked together at one time for uh, Mo's books on Telegraph and Berkeley. So we had many literary conversations. Oh, and I still work there, uh, among other things. And uh, so we'd have many conversations over a libation or two after work. And uh, we got to talking about the big sleep. Um, and uh, sort of it, it it accidentally came to light that it had never been annotated. It was just calling out culturally, historically, politically, aesthetically for to be annotated. And um, I think the first thought was, oh, someone's got to already have done it. So I looked into it and it turned out no one did. So we did it. How many people have, have, have not read the novel? 
Uh, we, we have a couple. We have but it, mostly Chandler, Chandler people. <laughs> so you must have some questions about this now. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, uh, maybe Pam should speak to this one. The early drafts were, were much of them were in his short stories. Um, um, yes, the, any early, actual early drafts of the novel do not survive. Um, and the, his manuscript doesn't either. But one of the really interesting things to find out as we were working on this is how he pieced together this novel from short stories that had been published before. And he kind of um, put the plots of two short stories together, stuck some scenes from another short story in there, and then transformed it all and made something new. But um, it was this incredible work of, of what he called cannibalization that went into it, where he very deliberately went back to use this old material that had been pu published in pulp magazines and as far as the world then was concerned, you know, was gone permanently. He kind of resurrected and turned it into this this new thing. So in our in our notes, we've tried to we've put a number of scenes from those early stories so that you can actually see where it came from and how they became a rough draft for, for this novel and the transformations they went through. Uh, as he as he worked on on them, so in that sense, yes, the rough drafts exist. <laughs> but he would have thought that they were. He even said that, um, as far as anyone was concerned, then these pulps were never coming back. It wasn't like they were still out there, and people would say, "Hey, you already wrote this story." It's just, you know, they were gone. You know, it may have came out of his, his study of the American language not being uh, exactly American. Um, it, I think it, it felt, since he, he was schooled in England and lived in Ireland, he had, and he was sort of back and forth, sort of thought, saw, thought of himself as, a, as, a, as an Englishman who happened to be living in L.A. And I think maybe that gave him, a, a, in a way, an ear uh, for the American language that other American writers didn't have. Also, he was a poet, so uh, I, th I think the music of the language and listening to these people read, uh, I was reminded again uh, that uh, that he understood that, and I think that went into the dialogue. Some of those lines of dialogue read like li little lines of poems. Well, he was here. He was listening, and and he he made there in uh, in UC, at UCLA and the archives and at Oxford, there are these lists of Americanisms and and uh, and uh, different different phrases in 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 the American hard-boiled language as he was kind of helping to invent it, and so he either heard them or read them, and and listed them. They're, they're kind of they're kind of amazing to look at. 
There was a larger uh, cultural thing going on too with language than the study of language. The um, prohibition spawned all of this. We talk a lot about this in the notes, but prohibition spawned slang among other things. And so there was this really fecund explosion of uh, new ways of speaking. And Chandler just kind of showed up, you know, in the middle of it and with, a, with an ear uh, for poetry. And, but a lot of people were talking about the language of the period. Um, so he's one of the kind of cultural, um, you know, studiers and he's embedding what He's, he's thinking about that. Mencken was studying at the same time the, the second edition of the American Heritage, uh, not the American, the Webster's Second came out in the 30s. And there's, there's tons of stuff that was coming out. American Speech was founded in the 20s. So it, people were talking about it and studying it already. And he kind of joined, but he sewed it, I guess. He sewed the dialogue into, the, uh, into his fiction rather than writing disquisitions on it. The book I got here at Skylight uh, is The World of Raymond Chandler's Own Words. Have you seen it? I've seen it. Pretty amazing, isn't it? In terms of bringing Los Angeles to life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, uh, it was uh, on the desk uh, we were doing it. We all had copies. Another question: Did you see the of this? Yes. Uh, yeah. How did it compare? Uh, it's uh, fascinating. Uh, well, well, you know, the story is that it, w it was uh, filmed and then recut, uh, mostly because of Bogie and Bacall. Uh, Bacall uh, became bigger, and as a couple, after To Have and Have Not, of course, they they were went from star, became major stars. He was a major star, she became a major star. So they recut it with all those, uh, those wonderful Bogey and Bacall uh, pieces. Um, it's an easier film to follow without it, but I would not give up those those scenes between them for anything, I mean, the, the chemistry. And it's, not, it's not pure Chandler, but yeah. Well, I mean, you could go back and forth about which is a better film, but it is really interesting to see the cut, both cuts. Uh, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, favorite game to play is, is uh, how would they do it now? Who would play Marlowe? Um, and uh, I, I think it's time for some remakes, but uh, we, we don't have much in the way of uh, film contacts. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah, true. Thank you. 
Well, I can speak to the, the LA as a character because I think that's one of the things that drew me to this project. Um, I didn't grow up in LA, I grew up in Northern California. And my idea of LA was largely shaped by Chandler and various film versions of Chandler and um, other people who followed in his footsteps like Ross MacDonald. And so I had this very strong image and idea of, of what the city was before I moved here. And um, I don't think I would have ever gotten to know it the way I did without that. But it's also always been this kind of overlay or, or underpinning, I don't know what, to my experience of LA because I see it through this idea that I formed of it through the novel. And um, for me, it's sort of parallel fascination with Chandler and with Los Angeles and the two feeding off of each other where um, I think you get a, a deeper connection to the city through the book, but also a deeper connection to Chandler maybe through finding out what the, the real referent was that he was, that he was writing about. So I found it really, uh, really fun and amazing to just try to figure out what, well, what's fiction and what's real here and, um, and what, when you're experiencing Chandler's Los Angeles, what is that? Um. Well, and I, I wanted to address what you said about women with agency because I feel like, um, from my point of view, Vivian is a very underrated character in that regard. She's problematic in many ways. She's spoiled. She's wealthy. Um, but And she's, you know, at odds with Marlowe. She's one of his antagonists, in a way, throughout the book. But her motivation is actually to protect her family. Uh, she doesn't have any... She doesn't want to kill Marlowe. She doesn't... She's not evil. Um, and she's very, very smart. She's, in every respect, Marlowe's verbal equal and intellectual equal. And Chandler gives her that. He takes it all away from Carmen, of course, but <laughs> he gives it all to Vivian. And I feel like that hasn't really been addressed, that she's a very strong character. I don't think that Chandler is condemning her, except in class terms, maybe, but not in gender terms. I don't see that addressed very much. And as I understand that last statement about style, the sort of sort of hard-boiled reductive style, um, right, right, and it, and it does, and, and that was something that was being done a lot, Hemingway and, and Hammett. I think for me, uh, Chandler, uh, if I can say this, does it better uh, because he could also write in another style, and and, and the contrast is, is amazing. Like between uh, what that last part that David uh, read which is a, a beautiful poem, really. And then the, these, these, the, the tough dialogue. And I think that's why certain things can stand out beautifully, because he, 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 he knew how to write more than one way.
think we're thinking the same. Actually, I, um, he he wanted to be uh, taken seriously, and, and I think he thought of himself as a, as a literary writer, um, use, using the the pulps to to build on. I think Hammett had that too, but uh, I, I, it's uh, presumptuous to say he would have loved us. But uh, <laughs> I think he would have liked being taken seriously as a writer, uh, not just as a crime writer. Just one other thing. He also defended the pulps themselves. He he didn't think of himself as as rising above some really shoddy genre. He he would. There are a lot of uh, wonderful quotes from him about. I can't remember them right now. But like the the pulp writers are like the Shakespeare of their time. Like Shakespeare too was writing in in a in a yeah, and that it's really no different. Have you got? I think Steph Chaw has to write the book told from the point of view of Carmen Sternwood. My husband Richard does this Raymond Chandler bus tour and I wanted to help him a little so I started researching the office, the oil company office. I did get bored. Four times a year watching you tell stories at the front of the bus. So in the office at the corner of 7th and Olive there was this sort of dipshit nephew of um, Mr. Dabney who desperately wanted to be an oil man millionaire himself and he got taken in by a cult of angel worshippers up on Bunker Hill. They shook him down for about 40 grand. 
And then he went to his uncle for help, and they ended up going to the district attorney's office. And in the course of investigating this cult, very interesting women, uh, they found that they'd been carrying the mummy of a teenage cult priestess around with them for years because part of their faith was the notion that they would eventually be able to bring the dead back to life. And if you can't bring back a beautiful 16-year-old priestess, what good are you? So this all happened in Chandler's office, in a small oil company office while he was there. He put so many weird real crimes from LA history, well not history, I mean it was happening in real time, into his books. He never put anything this strange into any of them. So I started working on what I thought was going to be a nonfiction book about the cult. There wasn't quite enough information, and I said, screw it, I'm just going to write the novel. Because he fictionalized L.A. crimes, and so he and his very, very smart secretary and a cop who was like a model for the real-life Marlowe got together and uh, spent a week chasing down the cult. Are we doing okay for time? One more question. that a reporter had followed up that there was a Jamaican private eye uh, named Samuel Marlowe, who was supposedly a real character. They had a gravestone of the person in the cemetery, and that this could have uh, informed both Keshia Hammond, Sam Spade, and Philip uh, Marlowe. Marlowe, and I'm wondering, I, I, I hope that with your research, you're going to put this to rest. Um, well, we couldn't put it to rest. Uh, is Daniel Miller here? He said he might come, to the, the reporter. Uh, I, I talked to him. We were kind of fascinated by the story, and, and uh, we actually include uh, uh, something in there. I, I have nothing to add as far as how true it is, but it's fascinating. We put it in there to illustrate that the fascination with Chandler and with Marlowe just goes on and on and on and, and things keep popping up. And I don't know. Thank you very much. Let's also thank our readers, Gary Phillips, Judith Freeman, Steph Chaw, Kim Cooper, and David Ewing. Thank you very much. The editors You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.